For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a look at Arizona Theater Company's challenges leading up to its 50th season. Tucson's Chinese community invites everyone to join in the upcoming Lunar Festival. Find out how you can help scientists around the world study butterflies and the debut of the series Feeding Our Future. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Last week, Arizona Theatre Company launched its 50th golden anniversary season. Yet despite a half-century as America's only major theater that serves two cities, most of the company's recent reviews have been financial in nature. Billy Russo, ATC's executive management consultant, lays out the story. This is a real, I think, artistic town, and we're, we're a piece of that. The Arizona Theater Company has been in Tucson since 1967. Today, it is the only fully professional theater company in the state. With shows at the Temple of Music and Art in Tucson and the Herberger in Phoenix, it is the only member of the prestigious League of Resident Theaters that operates out of two cities. Over the summer of 2016, on the eve of the company's 50th anniversary, its future and the jobs of its 44 full-time employees were in jeopardy. The organization was facing a, a, a severe cash crisis. Lynn Dusenberry chairs the Arizona Theater Company's Board of Trustees. Everybody who was on the board was worried. We had very, very serious decisions that we had to make. Financial woes started during the economic downturn in 2008, but were exacerbated by one bad year in 2013. The organization had a very large yearly operating deficit. Suddenly it became a manageable problem into a problem that required some radical thinking. The company said if it didn't raise $2 million by July 1st, it was going to have to cancel the upcoming season. It was going to be a hiatus of some sort, saying that we, if we didn't get that, we wouldn't be able to continue as currently planned. They did not raise the money in time. It seemed like an impossible goal to achieve. $2 million is a big number. An anonymous donor stepped up with enough money to extend the fundraising effort. Tucson businessman Michael Kasser said he would donate a million dollars if the company would raise the other million. There were some really hard questions being asked and saying, is this organization of val value to the community? Is it, is it a place that what we are doing people feel is important? And it was really nice to get that response because that answer became pretty clear. Over 750 people donated and the money was raised, saving the season. While the cast and crew are hard at work for the September opening of King Charles III, the fundraising efforts are still very much underway. This is perhaps the most unstable moment the royal family will face. While we raised that two million that was widely reported, we still have another 1.5 to raise for this season, and every indication is we are well on track to make that or exceed it. Arizona Theater Company makes about 60% of its revenue in ticket sales. 
The remainder comes from contributed income, which consists of grants, sponsorships, and, of course, donations. David Ira Goldstein has been ATC's artistic director for 25 years. Sometimes people will say to me, if you're so great, how come you need to raise money? Why can't you just sell enough tickets? And we probably could be a profit-making theater if we didn't provide education programs. Anybody can come see our play and get a rush ticket for very little money or come to a pay-what-you-can performance. Those things cost money that we can't raise at the box office. Relying on contributed income also allows the company another freedom. You have to be able to fail. And if, you're, if your budget is so on the line, you don't have that ability to take a risk. And so that's why you want to you want that balance to be a little bit stronger on the contributed side. While the crisis may have been averted, Lynn Dusenberry says ATC will continue fundraising and relying on donations for the foreseeable future. Many of my friends go running when they see me coming, wondering what I'm going to ask them for this time. But I give to the theater because um, I love the productions. I love getting to come to something that you know makes you think or makes you laugh or makes you walk out singing. It's important that Arizona value the arts and have places where people can make a living wage and make a life in the arts. Arizona Theatre Company Board Chairwoman Lynn Dusenberry also serves on the Community Advisory Board of Arizona Public Media. The story was produced by Andrew Brown and narrated by Steve Jess. You can see the television version with a backstage look at the launch of ATC's new season on the Arizona Public Media Facebook page. So it's called Midnight Meditation. Before my bed, the bright moon shines, the ground covered with frost. Lifting my head to the bright moon, my head drops, thinking of home. That was a poem about the Fall Lunar Festival. It was written during the Tang Dynasty, which lasted between 600 and 900 AD. It was read by Professor Zhao Chen, the director of the Confucius Institute and the department chair for epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Arizona. Over the next two weekends, the Confucius Institute and the Tucson Chinese Cultural Center will host a traditional celebration. Lunar Festival is in, on lunar calendar, August 15th. And it's said people may see the brightest and largest moon of the whole year. It's really a big part of Chinese culture. And with the moon as the symbol of this holiday, it means, you know, harmony and celebrating harvest season. So you share good food, wine with your friends and family members. So mooncake is the signature food for this holiday. A mooncake? Mooncake. Okay, what does it the taste mooncake, like? The mooncake, you know, is really uh, depend on the region you come from. Some place taste, you know, have a sweet taste. Some place actually have uh, both salt and uh, sweet. And then you put a filling, sometimes it would be the green bean paste. And sometimes it would be a very creative other type of <laughs> filling. Uh, depend on the regions you come from. And that's the you know signature food you got to have for this kind of holiday celebration gathering. So we're gonna share that with the community and uh, several events. One event is called the Showcase for the Integrating Chinese Medicine and Public Health Program. And students will be presenting their experience as well as the study 
so you're going to see a lot of pictures. They also have posters in the area of study. And then we're going to taste the mooncake together. So it'll be this Friday. On Friday, the 16th of September. Correct. And then evening, we'll have a concert at the UA Poultry Center. So why at the Poultry Center? Actually, a palm is a very important part of the celebration as well. This is actually our fifth time to organize uh, such cultural festival in Tucson. Every year we have uh, 3,000 individuals attend the various events. So tell us about some of the things that are happening next weekend. Next Saturday's events is specifically designed for students, parents, and the community members together to share this achievement of our students have reached during the years of study with Chinese language as well as a culture. So there would be language competition among uh, different level of students. And we're also going to have a talent show. So it would be really a fun event for the whole family. And so students will have opportunity to interact with martial art teachers to learn some movement and also to hear Chinese music teachers to teach them about the name of the music instrument. And we also have a dance group coming and show different Chinese dance costumes. And of course, with the focus of our Institute on Health, we're also going to show uh, Chinese medicine. So with acupuncture there and also uh, Twina, which is Chinese uh, form of massage. Can you share with us a Chinese greeting that you might use at the Lunar Festival to say hello to a friend or neighbor? You know, this greeting is really a wish you uh, happiness. So it's a happy mid-autumn. That's the kind of thing. But I'm going to say that's in Chinese. Okay, so happy mid-autumn. Autumn, yeah. Mm -hmm. Kuailu means happy. And then Zhongqiu uh, means mid-autumn. And then Jie is the, you know, festival. I spoke with Professor Zhao Chen, director of the Confucius Institute. Lunar Festival events will be happening this weekend and next at the U of A Poetry Center and the Tucson Chinese Cultural Center. There's a link to the schedule on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Stay tuned for more right after this break.
Welcome back to the show. This Sunday, the Arizona Insect Festival lets visitors get up close and personal with bugs of all shapes and sizes, but very few of them share the excellent reputation of the creatures that star in our next story, produced by Bryn Baylor. Let's see if we can see a photo of the giant swallowtail. We have 3,000 of them. There they are. We have 28 from Arizona. Yeah, we need more giant swallowtails. More pictures, people. Katie Prudick is a bug researcher at the University of Arizona. She's looking at a website called eButterfly, which has helped bring science to people and people to science. eButterfly is one of several internet-based citizen science projects that enable regular people to become the eyes and ears of academic researchers. People often have a difficult relationship with insects, but when it comes to butterflies, well, some people just can't get enough. Prudick explains. I tend to think of butterflies as the birds of the entomological world. The colors that make butterfly wings are like tiny, tiny feathers, so that's another way to think about them. eButterfly was started in 2011 by two Canadian researchers at the University of Ottawa. Prudick helped expand the site to cover the United States, and from her office on the University of Arizona campus, she's also working to expand eButterfly south of our border. E-Butterfly is an international web-based citizen science program that covers from Mexico all the way up to Canada. My role is to help recruit people, both natives who live in the area, and then people coming in for recreational purposes. Prudick says there are about 8,000 species of butterflies in the United States. Arizona is home to about 400. The butterflies of Arizona are known throughout the world as being some of the most beautiful Arizona has incredible biodiversity, not just birds and butterflies, but plants, fungus, fish. When butterfly expert Elizabeth Long lived in Prescott, she traveled frequently to southern Arizona in search of butterflies. She still vets photos and information submitted to the site by enthusiasts. One of the great things about eButterflies is you can really do it anywhere. You can submit your observations anywhere and know that it has value. Another eButterfly contributor is Margaret McIntosh who was introduced to the system via iNaturalist.org, another nature-themed crowdsource information site. She makes note of critters encountered in her neighborhood during her morning walk to work at the university. Nature is not something that is out there in a national park that you go to see. It's on campus, it's in your house, it's everywhere you look, and when you see the beautiful creatures all around you, you see how we're all in this together. To date, several thousand eButterfly users have entered about 200,000 individual observations or photos, and those numbers are expected to grow dramatically as the site expands. Prudick says contributors range from hobbyists to world-class scholars. And that's the point. Citizen science is honestly not new. Certainly in the butterfly and moth community, we've always had this connection with what we call amateurs versus professionals. We're engaging the community to help aggregate that data so that we all can look at it and engage in it. Even though Arizona is prime butterfly-watching territory, several species have disappeared. The blue silver spot butterfly, once found throughout the Southwest, as well as in Central and South America, hasn't been seen in southeastern Arizona for years. Also gone from Arizona is the tawny crescent, which is becoming rare over much of North America. Prudick says butterflies, or a sudden absence of them, can also tell us about the health of an area. 
Butterflies are canary in the coal mine to give us information on how climate change and land use change is impacting biodiversity, how an ecosystem works, and hopefully they'll give us a heads up of what we can expect in the near future and in the farther future, 50 years from now. Prudic will be at the Arizona Insect Festival, along with experts from the Tucson Botanical Gardens, Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, and researchers like Garrett Hughes, a Ph.D. candidate for the University of Arizona Entomology Department. He focuses on scorpion research and says public outreach is key. The Insect Festival is a really great opportunity for people to interact with scientists as people. For example, I'm involved in species descriptions, taxonomy, and I can't collect everything there is to collect. But a citizen who is out collecting and enthusiastic about insects, they can collect specimens that I would never see that I can use for my science. This is the sixth Arizona Insect Festival to be held on the University of Arizona campus. Based on past attendance, organizers expect about 6,000 people to come down and be with the bugs. This is Bryn Baylor for Arizona Spotlight. The Arizona Insect Festival is at the U of A Student Union on Sunday, September 18th from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, the first installment of a nine-part Arizona Spotlight series, Feeding Our Future. It explores the innovative work being done in Tucson to feed families, prepare for climate change, create pathways out of poverty, and promote our local food system. The series is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. Tucson's new designation as a UNESCO City of Gastronomy shines a spotlight on our multicultural history and vibrant food scene. Independently owned food businesses are the largest growing sector in Tucson's economy, accounting for 14% of all jobs in the city. But launching a successful food business takes more than just a good recipe, especially for low-income entrepreneurs. Laura Markowitz has the story. My name is Cecilia Arosemena. I own a company called Dish for Dosha that specializes in making raw juice personalized cleanses. Cecilia Rosamena studied to be a chef at the Art Institute here in Tucson. After she graduated, she needed a space. I was looking for a commercial kitchen to run her catering business. If you're in the food industry, getting a kitchen is like turning the on and off button. You need it. She couldn't find a free space and she couldn't afford to rent on her waitress salary. And then one day, I get the news that I may die. I have a two-pound liver tumor that is choking my vena cava, and at any moment, the blood flow could stop and I could drop. Um. Before her surgery, her friend and mentor, Leanne Hernandez, came to see her. Hernandez is executive chef and community life director at the YWCA of Southern Arizona. And Leanne said, listen, if you don't die, you can use my kitchen. Did those words come out of my mouth? Yes. Were we laughing and like carrying on at the time? Yes. <laughs> Arosemena survived and Hernandez kept her promise. 
the YWCA decided to use Dish for Dosha as an experiment. We have this kitchen. After three o'clock, it wasn't in use. And if we could run this experiment, could we advocate on behalf of other restaurants and community spaces opening their doors to these food entrepreneurs? Arosa Mena was told she could start at the beginning of the year. So on New Year's Day 2015, there she was. I didn't care that it was a holiday and nobody was working. Are you kidding me? I have a kitchen. Arosamena went into the raw juice business. She developed three basic recipes. Sunshine Burst, which has lots of ginger and turmeric. Root it down with turmeric and beets and carrots. And um, spice it clean, which is very heavy on the ginger. So for the people that love the spicy, that's a really good one. Then she realizes she knows how to make juice. I don't know how to do business. Hey, what's a PNL? Profit and loss statement? She turned to the Women's Business Center. It's also housed at the YWCA. Marisol Flores Aguirre is director. Our mission is to level the playing field for women, immigrant, and low-income entrepreneurs, helping them take their business from that thought process to let's plan it, let's grow it, let's build it, let's fund it. The WBC offers business consulting and technical assistance, and it connects entrepreneurs to people who can help, like local lawyers and lenders. If somebody who's trying to open up a business doesn't have to make 15 calls and we can help them speed up that process, that becomes more efficient, that becomes better business. Most of their services are free. Flores Aguirre set Arosamena up with a business mentor. Within a year, Arosamena hired two part-time staff. Because you wanted a gallon and a half of each, yeah. I have about a gallon of plus, it's almost three, um, a gallon and three quarters. Okay, for that's fine. Okay. We just picked up another order, so we'll use it there. Thank you. About 18 months into running her business, Arosamena pitched her juices to wholesalers. But to scale up, Dish for Dosha needed more juicers. She was still waitressing. That's how she was paying her bills. She needed a loan. I didn't have any capital. I didn't have good credit. I had a divorce, and I was a single mother, and I was low income, and I was minority. Dish for Dosha was turned down twice. Then the Women's Business Center found a potential lender. Flores Aguirre went to find Cecia Rosamena to tell her the good news. They crossed paths in the YWCA's lobby. <laughs> well, let's just talk. Who are these people that you've got this great meeting set up with? So Four. it's a community lender, one of the new partners that we've been working with. Uh-huh. It's going to happen. I need $16,237 okay. for that one machine. Well, we talked today about the 25000 so... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Marisol Flores Aguirre went with her to talk to the Community Investment Corporation. Arosamena made her pitch... She got the loan. With the new machinery, we were able to open up the wholesale market. 70 stores in Arizona now carry Dish for Dosha. We now have grown our sales to 400% more. What do you make per month? Um, right now we're selling about $7,000. The employees are pulling about 30 hours a week. She pays them above minimum wage. I don't even know how many hours I pull a week. I just, I just roll out of bed and come here. <laughs> Arosamena started paying herself for the first time in June. This is the outcome the YWCA hoped for. 
Dish for Dosha makes healthy food available to the community and creates good jobs for women. Is this an experiment that can be replicated? The Y shelters Dish for Dosha, and Rosumena doesn't even pay rent for the kitchen. She doesn't pay utilities. She doesn't even need to buy cleaning supplies. Flores Aguirre says the Women's Business Center helps more than a thousand clients a year, and the majority are startup food entrepreneurs. They can't all use the Wise Kitchen. She and Leanne Hernandez put together a list of licensed commercial kitchens in Tucson that possibly could share space with a startup. And so we started calling around. There were around a hundred. Five places said we're willing to rent. Zero were willing to lend their space for free. So the YWCA decided, let's build a commercial kitchen for low-income startups. And then it turns out they already had a location. The House of Neighborly Service in South Tucson. The YWCA took it over last year. It's a 70-year-old community center. Carrie Lopez-Howell is director of the center. She says the neighborhood has big problems with food insecurity, but food is also a big part of South Tucson's culture. It's an art form, it's a tradition in the city, it's a tradition in the families. And it's already an entrepreneurial business for a lot of people. A lot of people sell their tamales outside of Food City, and you can't technically do that unless you have the handling license. The Y received a community development block grant, and construction on the kitchen starts this fall. Marisol Flores Aguirre says the kitchen is an opportunity for low-income people to jump on the city of gastronomy bandwagon. You have all of these women that have historically had a catering business, but didn't call it a business. I get paid to do tamales, or I get paid to make salsas, but it was more of a hobby. And that's where the WBC comes in. You know, you have an inventory, you have a supply, you have a demand. Now, how do we get you licensed? Now, where are you going to sell it? Making money is the point. Is there a market for local products? People are interested in trying new things. This is a great time to be part of our local food system. Erica Mitnick-White is the Southern Arizona Director of Local First Arizona. It's a nonprofit that promotes local businesses. Farmer Chef Connection is a local foods expo where we bring in about 100 local food producers and then we invite in buyers, folks who are buying food for hospital systems, for school lunch programs, for hotels. She recently worked with a new boutique hotel downtown. They wanted to stock their in-room minibars with local products. So we did things like XO bottled coffee grass-fed beef crisps, chocolate bars from Queen Creek olive oil mill. There's so many great products out there. Jonathan Mabry helped write the application for the City of Gastronomy designation. He's the city's historic preservation officer. Having this international brand tells the rest of the world that this is a place that is doing innovative things throughout the food system that other cities can learn from and purchase. He says the city of gastronomy doesn't mean anything in itself. There's no money in it for Tucson. It's an opportunity for enterprising people to cash in on Tucson's food heritage and culture, especially if they have a kitchen. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. 
Production of Feeding Our Future is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. To learn more, visit azpm.org. And tune in next week for Episode 2 of Feeding Our Future. The Tohono O'odham people have the highest level of diabetes of any ethnic group on the planet. Now a new generation is reviving traditional crops on the nation, like tepary beans and 60-day corn. Getting native foods back on the plate, next week on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. The music is by Calexico. The engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. <laughs>